0: Welcome to the Tales and Tactics podcast, a podcast about tabletop games. I am one of your hosts, Max, and with me I have my co-host, Troy, and additionally we have our producer, Jay. How are you doing? And that is all you'll ever know us by. (laughs) Today we are talking about a game that is close to the hearts of many a war gamer out there, in fact probably the majority of them at this point uh but we're going all the way back to the first edition of warhammer fantasy battles so uh we're going to cover the origins of the system which is more the meat of the show and then we will end off with the impact and our own personal reflections on that so uh for as far as history and origins i will leave you in the capable hands of troy thank you max Okay, we're talking
1: about Warhammer Fantasy Battles. This is one of the big dogs in the room. This is one of the premier wargaming titles, and this first edition is what set this off. It's what gave Games Workshop the wings it would later fly on and really helped define how we would expect and interact with wargamings, especially of a more commercial nature going forward. So at the very start, Games Workshop wasn't what you think they existed as a wooden games board manufacturer. So they were making Go boards, they were making Parcheesi boards, they were making all these different components for completely unrelated games and properties. Later, they actually moved into becoming an importer of Dungeons and Dragons and TSR products into the UK. So that's where they really got themselves started into fantasy gaming and sort of more the tabletop experience as we think of it today. When they set themselves up, they were originally just a mail order outfit that you would send a letter to with a check to get your products, but they opened their first brick and mortar shop in April 1978 in London. And it became a local hangout for a certain type of character. And uh, it was at that time that you were selling Dungeons and Dragons in stores. You were selling the physical copies of White Dwarf Magazine, which had been in print at the time. And it wasn't just a company magazine as it is today. It was covering uh, hobby and tabletop gaming of all varieties. And then later in 1978, Citadel Miniatures was founded with funding through Games Workshop. Uh, co-founded by and this would become the miniature arm of Games Workshop that is still producing some of the finest miniatures today Citadel was um, producing various lines of models various products and eventually those would go on to become Warhammer models but at this time they were just Citadel miniatures while this is happening sort of parallel in development Richard Halliwell and Rick Priestley were publishing and developing their own tabletop miniatures game. This game, Reaper, originally released with a first edition in 1978, and later a second edition in 1981, and this is a game that was more directly inspired by the likes of Chainmail. It was, as far as my understanding is, uh, having not played it, it was a skirmish-style game with up to about 30-ish models a side, in a manner that's not dissimilar to the skirmish mechanics of its predecessor in Chainmail, but this would become the foundation of what would later develop into Warhammer Fantasy Battles. That came a couple years after. It was in 1983 that Brian Ansell of Citadel Miniatures, Richard Halliwell, and Rick Priestley came together to author Warhammer Fantasy Battles First Edition. This was sold as a boxed game to game stores, and within the box were three rule books. Now, the reason why they sold it as a box is because game stores didn't yet sell books like we see today. They wouldn't have wanted to have books on a shelf. That's a bookstore. And a bookstore wouldn't have taken something as um, crass as game books. How dare they? So instead, it was put in a box with John Blanche artwork, of course, to sell how exciting this new game was, and had interior art by Tony Ackland. This box had tabletop battles, magic, and character books originally included, and it was the beginning of Warhammer as we know it today. So going forward, we're gonna dive into the systems and the actual presentation of these rule books now, and I'll give you a little bit of an indication of just how different the books are compared to what we see today. So there's a very casual tone throughout these books. I drew criticism in gaming magazines at the time for the poor English and and poor grammar that was used, (laughs) but it was really going for much more of a conversational tone. It wasn't it was nothing like, um, the WRG rule books of the time of the seventies that were written, like with legalese text. This was just a, a conversation between friends. Um, there's even the way that you decide first player by rolling a dice or something. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like this hilariously casual approach.
0: Very off the cuff. Yeah.
1: Yeah, exactly. So this was the start of the rules that GW would be producing. And even in this first book, there is specific reference to Citadel miniatures being what you're gonna play with. So there was already a model to game partnership in effect. And Brian Ansell was credited as one of the writers and he was the head of Citadel. So it just goes to show that this was like the birth of the commercial war game, where there was a model with a serial number that matched to a stat line in the game, and that's what you played. And this started here. Um, another way that worked mechanically was the troops didn't have point values for different items that you purchased for them, as you may be familiar with with later war games. How this worked is troops are what you see is what you get. A guy's got a sword and a shield, then mechanically he has a sword and a shield. And that's how that works. And that was... That was something that was, again, just kind of based on the fact that they were just making a stat line for a model that existed from Citadel C series, for example. And that would be how they proceeded. So it was a really interesting approach, really interesting game. Uh, It had similar phases to what we're used to seeing now. So, you know, when me and Max or me and Jay are playing a game, we're really used to going through your classic wargaming phases of move, shoot, fight and warhammer in many ways started that but it's interesting to see just how different these implementations are so there are multiple movement phases in this game in your in your player turn yes that's a really interesting concession how it works is in your first phase you're allowed a standard movement or a double movement ending in contact with an enemy what we would consider a charge then the second movement phase follows after you've concluded both a shooting phase and a fight phase. And that's your reserve movement phase where you're allowed to make a follow-up move with troops uh, that have not previously shot or fought. So it, it has a really interesting rhythm and flow that works a little differently than you may expect. And when you get into how movement works, you know, something that surprised us was just how detailed it is. Like you're talking half-inch movements to different troops and the armor that the troops are wearing is going to change and influence the speed of your infantry um of your models and it's all based on what you know like what they are so if you're an elf you'll be moving at four inches compared to an armored dwarf who's three and a half inches he doesn't care if he's wearing armor so there's a a really interesting uh level of detail that this game has that is in modern game would never mess with you'd never have half inch movements that's way too fiddly yeah but it's kind of it's kind of fun in a weird retrospective way
0: <laughs> it's um i'm trying to think of the sense that goes into making a decision like that but i suppose that's just what they were used to doing and despite it having those very um incrementive elements it's um how would i say It's actually not, it doesn't, it's not written like that. No. It's very um, loose in a lot of its terminology. As you say, it's very conversational in how it's written. But yeah, some of the math is strangely very uh, specific. It's
1: like they had carpentry tape measurers and just wanted to use them.
0: Yeah yeah exactly it's like oh well i guess we're going by the half yeah
1: would you have gotten as much detail in your movement in your like more historical war games oh historical war games were very much rooted in like what's our time scale and what's our ground scale and Mm -hmm. therefore what are we translating into a movement per turn so they could get obsessively detailed and very fractional about their movement rates because they're trying to specifically be something so like to to quote a game that was about um, the Boer War, the Second Boer War, um, in Africa, Mm -hmm. uh, the game specifically made reference to a journal written by a soldier that accounted for his movement, you know, of his battalion. So when the game author, uh, Richard Clark was writing this game, he actually used the notes from that journal to help come up with the ground speed. So when he knew how far a rifle could shoot, not like could technically shoot, but was practically shot at, you know, by the soldiers in conflict, he would then be able to compare that to the movement rate and figure out in inches, like if they're shooting 20 inches with their rifles, therefore their movement speed would be eight inches based on the, the record of this book and what I'm setting my turn intervals at. Right. So like you would get so much detail in a historical game and to see that level of thought process still being present in a fantasy game is really cool, but you can definitely see how... They were influenced but didn't go as far as some other games have gone in that respect, but they still took that influence and they still incorporated it so that you have distinction and difference between the units. Because at this stage, like to, to diverge for a little second here, in modern war gaming and especially in Modern Games Workshop, there's always a special rule per unit. Mm. Like Every unit's going to have a twist to them that helps modify what they are, what they do and how they play on the table. They didn't really do that in this game. This is way before a lot of that additional design chrome came into effect. So in this game, having half-inch movement differentiations becomes very important because it is what separates troops, not that these guys get a bonus morale save of some type. You know what I'm trying to say?
0: Yeah, it's interesting just to go back to like how the book is written in the sense of that sort of looseness. I think one thing that we discovered, but certainly something that I picked up on was that it has the tone of I know how a war game is played, you know how a war game is played, but I'm going to spend some time troubleshooting particular sorts of things you might run into because I figured out a system or an answer for that so it it reads almost like a troubleshooting guide yeah in a in a very odd way it does. Um, a really good example movement is a really good example
1: and formation yes oh 100 like it really expects you to have an understanding of how to play a tabletop game because it does not walk you through any introductory concepts and then when you get to block and formation movement in the movement rules they're almost like hey check out my solution to this just like you described max yeah and it's very elegant for its time. You're doing block formation by we, by pinning a corner, like pin the left corner, wheel the right corner, measure the t- the distance moved by the corner and that's your wheeling distance. Mm-hmm. It has that. So and that's really standard. That's how games do it today. But it also has a turning mechanic where your troops turn on the spot either facing you know from cardinal direction north to east or to west and it allows your formation to on the spot change facing and that's something that other games have handled by allowing you to rotate your block in different ways but in this it's a little different that the dudes just standing there themselves rotate yeah so the format the formation itself there's like a consequence to it not just the whole block spins on the spot so that your command models remain facing in the front in this sense if you had a hero in the front and then you were to reform he'd still be where he was it would just now be the back of the unit so it's interesting how that applies um And there's just that level of detail that makes it kind of intriguing. And there is, of course, individual movement for if you're playing at more of a skirmish scale or you're moving individual heroes or characters around. So that's fully accounted for as well. Mm -hmm. But for me, it was the block formations and wheeling and how it was pretty simple. It didn't spend a... I mean, the problem with block formation play in a lot of cases is it just creates a ton of errata as you need to figure out like... Right, yeah. Is it okay if the unit gets a free 90 degree move correction? Is it okay if it's only touching one model to their one model, but it's two big blocks? Like there's edge cases that can come up here, Mm -hmm. but they handle it pretty simply. And I think that's a strength of the game. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And when you move out of the shooting phase, you get into the, uh, sorry, when you move out of the movement phase, you get into the shooting phase. And that's where it's a little different again than your classic memory of Warhammer may suggest, because it's a shared shooting phase where both sides are going to participate in the shooting. So it's not similar to, uh, like 40 K where it's, Hey, here we go. I'm going to shoot all my dudes. I'm going to do all my contacts. And then it goes on to your turn and then you do all your dudes. Like in this game, I move all my guys to my first movement phase and then there is a shared shooting phase meant to represent the fact that the missiles and the ballistics were just being fired across the whole battle it wasn't like the archers were waiting for my turn to fire they were just they were loosening the arrows when they had the order so it, it it kind of accounts for that and the shooting has short ranges like they still say in the, later in this book to play on a full scale table but the shooting is like 16 inches
0: on a longbow. i trying to remember if they mentioned things like um, catapults or something like that. But your standard shooting range is usually no more than 16 inches at the longest.
1: Yeah, 100%. And there's a lot of eight inch range weapons on short bows for like gobbos
0: and stuff like that. Some other interesting aspects with the with the idea of shooting phase. Is, and this is something I think I've seen in some other games. But, but I I kind of like, I think maybe it needs to be rethought a little bit. But the idea that the shooting phase is almost like an interruptive phase that happens before the troops actually make contact or before they start fighting, I should say.
1: Oh, yes. Yeah, I've liked shooting phases before movement phases. I like that concept a lot. I think that works really well. Yeah. And the way it works here by having it at least before the reserve move in the combat phase does mean that you get to pepper your foes with your arrows before... You're just run down, so to speak. Yeah. So it's it's a good it's a good way to handle it. And you get a look at how um they see the ballistic skill chart evolving because it's called bow skill in this original game. The term ballistic skill doesn't come in till 40k or rogue trader's appearance. But in this game, you have your bow skill. Uh, whether you're hitting on ballistic scale or sorry bow scale 10 or one or <laughs> whatever but it's definitely an example of um of your shooting uh the quality of the troops that's all included and then you're comparing strength to toughness on a number versus letter chart so toughness is a letter and that's what rates how strong you are from either the weakest character, you know, of a goblin or a militiaman, all the way up to a dragon. And that is the comparison. And I mean, there's a million reasons that you could have chosen a letter. I think it was just so that it looked different in the columns of the chart for readability. But later they abandoned that because you don't need alphabets. In your war games. You know, we have enough stuff to figure out. We don't need to like parse like what is a C strength relative to or C toughness relative to strength for. Like, no, we're not doing that. But it was interesting that they tried that. Mm -hmm. And then um, that was something that would be applied in both shooting and in melee. You would see that. And then once you had done damage in shooting, you get a saving throw. And the saving throw is based on the literal armor. Of the model so again you're not paying like plus 10 points to give him heavy armor if the goblins wearing heavy armor he's got heavy armor make your save
0: yeah it's very uh very WYSIWYG. it is as far as like loadouts
1: and the other thing is um the saves are or how do i phrase it they're like low saves or they're numbers so it's they're less likely to save your models life than say we're familiar with in later war games where you're throwing like two plus armor saves in this game getting a four plus armor save is a big deal
0: yeah no the scaling in this is very different from later games
1: A 100 percent. and then the combat phase of this game it's kind of similar to uh what we're familiar with in later editions and it uses very similar mechanics to the shooting phase in terms of the rolling to strike rolling to hit and rolling to kill um rolling to kill is a cool way to describe rolling to wound i don't know why they changed it but they did Mm. and um you get into combat from the charge move we talked about earlier in that first movement phase so you get your double move you smash into the front of the skeletons with your goblins then you have a combat sequence based on initiative so whoever has Effectively, you work your way down in tiers, so whoever has the greatest initiative will go first. They get to make their combat sequence of roll to hit, roll to kill, and then trigger saving throws on the defending models. And then you go to the next initiative step with whoever's left who survived the last one. And you'll work your way through your combat sequence, and then at the very end, most wounds and kills wins, and the losers are pushed back accordingly, depending on the difference in, um, excuse me, the battle. Yes. So that would be the basics of shooting in combat. And it's not crazy different than how so many other games are going to interpret it. But you got to remember, this is the first time it was done or one of the key first times it was done. Sure.
0: Yeah. This is maybe a more explicit way of handling that.
1: Yeah. And again, they're saying you're playing this on a six by four table. So they're that's the classic big old table size that many wargamers aspire to have one day. And Your tournament
0: style table,
1: yeah. Yeah, and I mean, I think a lot of that is because of the tradition of playing club style games in the UK yeah. where they had tables of that size. Like it had this developed in different communities, maybe it would have been different, but these guys were playing in shared spaces on big tables. So they had that flexibility. And even in the, the published adventure, they don't really tell you how big the table is but it does feature a gigantic piece of scenery, so it is like kind of inspiring you to think of like, no, you more is more when it comes to Warhammer.
0: Oh yeah, the included adventure is not messing around. Like it's, it's got a giant pyramid right in the middle of it.
1: Yeah, it's called the Ziggurat of Doom, and you play <laughs> That's such a good name. It is, man, I love it. And you play a plucky band of dwarven adventurers fighting off. A horde of goblins and you can be taking on like over 30 goblins in this battle just because of what you're rolling on d6s to spawn enemies at different phases and it's it's wild mm-hmm. you could even get a free model by mailing into games workshop to with your like proof of purchase and they would mail you the leader of the dwarven warband in this scenario but it was um it was very interesting and there are stats included and it gives you everything you need to be able to play it And when they give stats, it's also really interesting. They give you a mention of what catalog reference number you should grab from the model. So it'd be like, oh, this model is this stat line, or these three models can use this stat line. What are they armed with? Whatever the model's armed with. But it's kind of like an interesting, they don't, like nowadays it's just the model kit is named the same as the guy in the rule book. So you know what is what. But That's kind of how they handled the core rules and that's like the base 50 page book that walks you through how to play this game it doesn't have magic and it doesn't have campaign or character advancement because that's what comes next yeah but this is going to give you everything you need to do a wide range of fantasy fights from smaller skirmish actions to rank and flank big battles and it does it all pretty refreshingly simple i expected there to be a a, like when you read some earlier games workshop rules there can be a lot going on but this actually had a certain simplicity to it that made me feel like i could put this on table without
0: a lot of figuring out i was shocked at how minimal it was yes in a lot of ways Mm -hmm. like even if you go through movement obviously so you have like your armored versus like unarmored movements you have then they have um modification with mounted yes uh, movement and then they immediately go into like uh how to handle difficult ground and obstacles and it and it's just very like i don't know how to say it. it's it's almost incidental like as if like and then you'll probably run into this or you'll be next you'll be asking like it's, it's like they know what question you're going to ask next and then they just put that section in and those sections i have to like just to describe this book it is very airy, like there is a lot of white space and not a ton of text. We're not talking about like double column, huge blocks of words. We're looking at a few lines with a couple lists and a few measurements and maybe a table here and there. Yeah, and when I mean table, I mean like, I mean, what <laughs> there are parts of this book that almost look like they were hand typed on a typewriter and then somehow printed. Like, there's something about the font that just looks like it was, like, run off somebody's, like...
1: My understanding is that it was, um like, a print and paste job. Yeah. So, like, you would typeset your text, and then you would manually leave gaps, and then you would, like, glue the art down onto the page when you scan it. Yeah. Like, it's pretty... Pretty rudimentary.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, it was it was um done on a budget. It probably would have been much more complex than a lot of zines at the time, or even newsletters. Yeah, uh, like gaming newsletters. And it's it's pretty simple and decisive. Like I was really surprised with like how unheavy the whole thing was to read. um But yeah, they go into you know tactical things, charges, countercharges. Uh, routing fleeing uh um, yeah
1: oh that's something i wanted to touch on more um is the psychology and the
0: morale sure yeah so that's that's a this kind of gets it's i would say that that comes out of mechanics like morale from things like chainmail and subsequently dungeons and dragons but it has a whole other dimension in this game yeah which i guess which is becomes standard from this point forward, but yeah, Troy, go ahead. Well,
1: you're absolutely right. Like some of the Warhammer psychological terms like fear, hatred, um, frenzy, they start in this game and some of their mechanical implementation is like just echoed throughout later editions, all the way to eighth. Like you'll see similar impacts to the fear mechanic. I mean, it's worded differently. The specific rules you're making are different because as we're gonna talk about with morale now, there isn't a leadership score. Mm. You're, there isn't a stat that makes this one unit greater than another unit in terms of their resolve or will. It's all based on contextual modifiers. So if you have a lord or a king with you, that'll modify. If you're flanked, that'll modify. So there's all these different considerations that will give you a different outcome. And then that'll cause you to either you know fall back, break, route, different things. And the morale of the game to me that's one of the things that makes a game is morale and in this game morale is an involuntary movement system not just a substitute for damage system which is not a bad thing it's just a thing Mm -hmm. and i think the involuntary movement of this game is actually really cool even though it's it's it can cause conflict between players who disagree how to handle it it can be fiddly it can be lots of things yeah but i i love a good round of involuntary movement and i think the morale system in this though being very simple and very introductory to what it will later become still has a pretty cool impact on how the game plays and if you're forced to make like three fallbacks as opposed. Uh, pardon me, during your combat phase, so three consecutive rounds of combat in which you're pushed back, that will also trigger a morale impact. Mm -hmm. So there are different ways for morale to be affected in the game, depending on the things that happen to your units. So it's really cool. I I think, again, by tackling morale, putting it front and center, and making it an important part of your game captures something about miniature wargaming that's special in most, not to soapbox, but in most um, computer games, digital games, whatever, Your dudes do what you say, and they do it on time. Mm -hmm. But I love how in a tabletop game, even in 1983, the rules were, your dudes aren't going to do what you want. They're going to do something, but not always what you want.
0: Yeah. It does feel like kind of managing an unruly mob, and depending on what faction and units you're using, it may be more or less unruly. Yes, (laughs) exactly. (laughs) Uh, Because just to go through some of those morale modifiers, so you have hated, which Basically uh gives that unit prerogative to attack a unit that they designate as hated. Yep. Which is interesting. Fear, which is kind of the reverse of that, which is to say there is a um that unit will have some resistance in interacting and getting worse morale checks from contact with a certain unit. If I'm hopefully I'm correct on that. Yeah. And then then you have Terror and Frenzy, which are almost more like the result of the first two. Not necessarily exactly that, because I think there are rules for where they can happen independently. But yeah, I think that's essentially what's going on here. So like, hated units can Frenzy m- more easily, or there's there's a logical connection to that.
1: Right. Well, and it's even interesting, the way that Frenzy is written, that you can't wear armor, kind of comes back in the way that dwarf troll slayers are presented in the lore as being unarmored dwarves who are frenzied, sure, like there's, yeah. it's, you can see like it's laying down something. Because that's another point we should bring up. There is no lore in this book. There is no setting at all. I mean, no. they make yeah. references to Tolkien concepts. They make references to Italian princesses. Like it's a very, very bizarre collection of things that have made this book. And it's not based on a warhammer
0: setting that we are familiar with today it's not even that you can see the roots of that thing there's like i guess in the art might be the closest thing that comes to a suggestion of like the future warhammer setting that would be created but there's n- there's nothing in here just a side note i'm looking at some of that art right now and it looks pretty rad <laughs> I really oh yeah get it uh if you like that old school dungeon style of black and white uh line art this is some top-notch examples there's uh i particularly like the uh what was it there's one of the the example of terror a very expressive guy wearing a a uh a viking helmet freaking out in, at the appearance of a spider is, uh, <laughs> and it and it's done in this super loose way it's almost cartoonish it
1: is well the um the art by Tony Ackland's is really interesting because he did uh, fighting fantasy.
0: Yes, that's right. And it's interesting because I find some of the fighting fantasy stuff a bit more refined. Yes. In that sense. I could get that. But this has definitely got that same kind of line quality. So it's it's really cool to see that. And I think the thing I like the most about his art is that it has a kind of lightness to it. Where it's it doesn't feel, it feels almost doodle-like. Yeah. Where it, it doesn't feel overworked. One of the ones that I thought was very fun as a rule, just to go back to the psychology is stupidity.
1: Oh yeah. I love stupidity. I mean, it sucks when you have trolls on your side, but it's a lot of fun as like a, as an idea for, for play. And it can have a big impact on one of your, like one of your hammer anvil units, you know, if your trolls decide to not do anything for a couple turns.
0: (laughs) Or if one of your own units somehow comes in contact with it.
1: Yep that's another point
0: it's it it definitely lends to that idea of story wargaming where it's more about the fun thing that got out of hand than necessarily you winning though of course you want to play as i said the, the my mindset to those sorts of games is i want to win because the little guys on the table want to win yes but as far as the fun i'm going to be having that's Also going to be derived from the stupidity that will ensue. I totally agree. It's a narrative game,
1: and it really is something you pick up in the next two books. So, like the magic book, half the spells—yes,
0: we can go under that—are
1: are are not even battle spells. They're like adventure, weird applications that would fit more into Dungeons and Dragons than they would, you know, a a comet of Casanova coming down.
0: Yeah, um, it's very dungeons and dragons as far as like what uh choices of spells they're putting in here the system is interesting i don't know i don't know enough about the later editions of magic in warhammer um but there's an interesting risk of uh life energy as being one notable thing about casting too many spells which is neat because there's a sense of risk reward when being a magic user
1: that shows up in later editions through the winds of magic table with the ability for like zinch to come pluck you from this realm of existence Mm -hmm. so there's that type of thing where the risk reward applies in later games and it's something that happens with warhammer fantasy is the magic system gets completely renovated several times you know how we talked about aspects of the movement system being very familiar multiple editions later that's not true of magic so the way magic goes in warhammer is it Tends to get completely blasted and re-envisioned there's been card systems there have been tables you roll Mm. on for random spell effects there have been lots of things so this is a very interesting version of magic but the inclusion of cure light wounds by itself just kind of tells you where they're taking their influence magically speaking and it's much more dungeons and dragons aligned um they have necromancy for evil magic and that is kind of what you see as their analog for all evil magic, including what we will come to see as chaotic magic. And yep. this, they didn't really have that. It was just evil and it was necromantic and you would raise the dead or so steal someone's soul or, you know, all types of cool things. The,
0: there's, uh, there isn't that obvious, like, Moorcockian thing. Like, it's subtle, but it, there isn't this expressed idea of, like, chaos being... These gods and these sorts of outcomes as far as magic
1: yeah that comes like they play at it in this book because if you go to the back of the book where there's like the mail order stuff they even say like coming soon realms of chaos and rogue trader. so they're even indicating 40k will exist right and they're even talking about including yeah specifically the chaos influence in the setting but that comes later so in this first edition it's just good versus evil. And that's sort of the the way magic is interpreted. Yeah. And then in the last book, book three of this set, that's where, again, we get that simple style of alignment. So this book is for creating player characters, advancement, GMs, so game masters, and campaign play. And that's all covered in this last book. Yeah. This is... Something that later editions will handle differently. I mean, all the way up to 5th edition Warhammer and like the Red Era, you still have advancement as something that can happen to your characters. Like they can still grow over time. But in this, it was again more directly inspired by a role-playing game than it was by thinking of a war games campaign and how to track the progression of a character in that. This is like directly seeing an RPG as the way to handle that.
0: Yeah. I mean, that was my sort of joke once I had flipped through this the first time around is like, there's a role-playing game hiding inside this war game. (laughs) And I'm not even joking that you could take that third book and elements of the other two books. You could basically reverse the order and play a game of quasi something almost between and D and bx D. it's it it, it 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 isn't either of those things but it feels like it belongs in that sort of yeah group of of role-playing games and yeah you you could absolutely reverse the loading on this and play a dungeon crawler if you really wanted to
1: yeah you could there are dungeon fight rules in the main book like it does even give you the ability to to handle those types of encounters, so it's there, and they give you rules for making a player character. And something that this is a connection I think I see is there's a d100 table for skills, mm. and the skills are not skills like like um you know breaking and entering or something, right? The skill is thief, so it's actually based on the profession. Yeah, and I think that's going to influence how Warhammer role play later takes its tone, as opposed to having a class system and has a profession system. And it's almost like you're seeing that in this book, which is very interesting.
0: Well, as I said, that that's very uh, basic expert style D&D. Um, or, yeah, I mean, you see that in AD&D as well, but there's this idea that l- your level is is a modifier that you can wager against something else. So against like a check. In later editions, will turn into things like proficiency. Sorry, I'm talking about D and D, but like in relation to that, yeah, that concept definitely exists already. But so it's not surprising to see them take that tone with it. But you're right; it's like the skills are what we would think of as classes, and that does check out with other role playing games that would have preceded it. Yeah, because when this came out, the the big boom of Dungeons and Dragons in the 80s would only have just gotten hot at this point. Right. Because D&D blows up in about 83. And that's right when this is releasing. Yeah, exactly. So this is, is it's in the zeitgeist 100%. But um, by anything that comes out equivalent to that, it's drawing influence from something older. Uh, because obviously the people at TSR are at the cutting edge of their own game and no one else is at least until it's sort of had time to sink in. Yeah. So these guys are definitely pulling from more of the OD and D probably a D and D they would have been inside that because they sold the game. So they would be up to date with everything being released to that, including say the white box for original.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And because they were importing dungeons and dragons you can see that it inspired them to go their own way yes and you can see that that was a jumping off point for them and like the way that you randomly roll for your pc stats like you're rolling down the line it's very similar to the early editions of D. oh yeah and they cover um the role of advancement for pcs there is a discussion on game mastering and campaign play in the last booklet And one of my favorite parts of the last book is there is a reaction alignment table for NPCs that you roll on to tell you when you meet them, what is the likelihood of them being good, neutral, evil, or the two other moralities that you can have, the two other alignments. And they could be good, evil, neutral, avarice, or hunger. And hunger to me is the one that's the most fun because that kind of applies to like beasties and in monsters in the wild but it it would be something where let's say let's just pick someone for example so say we meet a balrog because that's super fun a balrog is evil 100% of the time there is no other outcome for if you have a balrog but if you were to roll a gold dragon he's good one to 95 percent of the time in avarice 96 to 99 with hunger on the 100 alone so it's got this kind of cool again like what type of role-playing game uh pardon me what type of war game has you roll to see if your opposition is actually just going to be your friend no one no one does that sure or negotiable
0: yeah like they give the sense that in so i guess you kind of get into the idea of like alignment in games because we had mentioned yeah. that Though up to this point, we had only talked about law and chaos because that had all been the only thing. And then Gary then puts out a few things about good and evil, and you end up with more of that nine-square style alignment or something close to it. Yes. But this is a different interpretation of that. It's more like motivation, and you really don't want your enemy to be evil because as far as I understand, the way that they suggest it is essentially evil evil creatures are n- essentially non-negotiable yes whereas hungry and avarice means that i can give you food or money and that might susate you in your motivations mm
1: mm-hmm. 100% like it's interesting that you you're right it is a motivation it's not like a choice like i choose to be good and i'm on the good team now it's more like what is your root motivation for the actions you take is that good And if so, then there you go. That helps you understand this character. So it's really interesting. And there is also um, full shop lists too. Like as if players would go shopping in this game, in a war game. Uh, Again, there's an RPG hidden inside. Mm -hmm. And in this RPG, you can go shopping and you can buy all types of things. And that's fully included. And then at the end of this, there is an adventure scenario. And it's It's not like the Ziggurat of Doom. It's actually... um, a much bigger section and I mean they have a section preceding it called creating adventures where they sort of walk you through and they give you encounter charts and they help set things up but the Red Wake River Valley that is the name of the official introductory adventure and it's got the Troll Hills the Northern Plain um, Forsetta Althclath. So yeah, it's I don't think I've ever seen any of these names in another publication before, but it's it's really interesting and what it's about is it's about fighting some goblins. Hmm. And what you what you do is you do effectively role-play style things as you go to Silberry Ferry, the Stone Circle, Menglad, like as you go through some of these different landmarks, so you're doing it as a role-playing character. But then at the end of the game, you're effectively going to be fighting a mass battle. And then you're going to be entering a wizard's tower to fight an evil wizard. So it's cool that this scenario is actually going to trigger a lot of the mechanical content of this box set in a different way. So it, but it does kind of ask you to play two different games. You know, you will play a role-playing game for a while, and then you will stop playing a role-playing game to play uh, a large combat fantasy game, at which point you will resume playing a role-playing game. Yeah. And I don't know that there was a distinction to the people at the time. But I I
0: don't think there was.
1: Yeah, I feel like we would have that distinction now just because of the mechanics being so different, the interaction being so different, and we're so familiar with this concept of game genre that just didn't exist then. So I don't... It's something that we have to think about reading it now compared to when they would have read
0: it then. Considering the time when it was made, I don't think that those ideas had enough time to have been divorced from each other. So that the idea of... Like, obviously, they had hit on... I wouldn't even think of, role, I mean, they never, they didn't even, for the longest time, they didn't even call them role-playing games. That The distinction was so non, not a thing. Right. But even beyond that, it was m- probably more thought of as, as a style of play and not as a separate game. So it was like a lot of games would have so- something like, I don't think you want to call it like a mini game, but I think the best way to describe it is, are modes of play. Right. And- wargaming had discovered through dungeons and dragons a new mode of play which is i could play one guy and that one guy can still i mean this is where we get these older concepts of like followers yes in dungeons and dragons um the idea that you would take like other units with you or in the on the upper higher levels of playing dungeons and dragons The fact that you would be commanding armies and have, like, a stronghold and stuff like that.
1: Yeah, for domain play, that's right.
0: Yeah, I don't think it was considered to be sort of, like, a separate thing. It was just like, oh, if we want to play nobodies that rise up and take over the world, you know, and then build our own kingdom, then this is where we would start playing, and then we would get to that stuff.
1: Yeah, right. Was the uh, the intention to have kind of the RP stuff in between the big battles and
0: you kind of go back and forth i don't know that there's much intention i think it's entirely situational Mm. right like as i said like even in original dungeon crawling like in ODD and even into first edition you you're kind of followed surrounded by a cloud of non-player characters that you depending on your gm and play style you might even have direct control over or semi-direct control over. Um, I've talked to different people. I've, I'm in contact with some old players. And a um, uh, shout-out to my very good acquaintance, Ray. He basically said that depending on who he was playing with, they would um, either basically have subunits, like a war game, or they would, via the Dungeon Master, Tell them what would happen, but the result is effectively the same. You have these sort of subordinate additions that are essentially kind of like extensions of your character, and they would be used to feasibly pull off things up into including fighting a battle. Now, that was considered high-level play, right? but it wasn't that far off from what's being suggested in this book. Like The rules in this book, as I said, the reason I feel they read like a troubleshooting guide is... They might even imagine you using other systems in tandem with this and using this book to solve some of those problems. Right. Like Troop Movement. I don't think that the idea, like evidently they're selling this product because they want you to play your, they want you to play their game and they've included everything that you would need in order to make it a complete product. But I think everybody at the time knew that this was more like a culture and less like a brand. And so mixing and matching your rules or trying to use different things to solve different problems. I mean that's why most of the rules in early editions are just zines. You know, because it's it's like an ongoing conversation. And this game, as complete as it feels and as complete as it is, you can play the whole thing and get everything you need more or less out of this. You'll have to make up some stuff, but they even explain that. It just feels like a big zine in some way in some ways. You know, it's one that you could play entirely separate of any other game, but it really is good at informing how you would do certain things, even in like your Dungeons and Dragons game, if you wanted to. And I don't think that there's an assumption that you wouldn't do that.
1: It's like you said, it's very toolbox. It's very solutions oriented. Yeah. And I feel like what it does is it, it almost takes like, like when when these guys like you know um the original team richard hollywell rick Priestley, um you know brian ansell when they sit down to play it's almost like they had different scenarios coming up in their games than gygax and his co so it's almost like oh well we need different rules because we keep having these battles happen you know what i mean and it's almost like it's just their conclusion as to what a role-playing game might have and it's really interesting, because when this hit the magazines of the time, reviewers praised the miniature battle rules and really liked that aspect of the game, but most of them found the role play rules like derivative and ineffectual.
0: And I get that. like reading them. I can see how that but yeah. and like no, totally.
1: And then we can look at the impact of this game, and you can kind of see that they hear that, and then later editions curtail the amount of the game that is spent off table, we'll call it, in role-play only scenarios. They keep role-play aspects like keeping a POV in a battle, like Mm -hmm. in the early editions of Warhammer, you are meant to be the general. right? But it is something that in later editions, they they don't even do that anymore. But back in the day, it still has that role-play element to it that eventually filters out uh, and some of that is through the commentary that they received, you know, from reviews and from their players. But it's it's really quite interesting. And I mean, this game is the one that launched Games Workshop, but also defined how so many other games were going to handle similar interactions. Right. So the way that we're familiar with the wheel and the movement, I mean, so many games lifted from this and this is lifting from historical titles that preceded it but this is the moment where it had the bigger cultural impact that more people were aware of it so this becomes where people are drawing their inspiration even if some of these mechanics had a home before warhammer but i think this i mean for the better changed wargaming Games Workshop's a divisive company, so they, not everyone loves them, but back in this time, what they were doing was something really important for this hobby, and it's just really interesting to see them come from like a wooden game board manufacturer literally making chess boards. To then getting all the way to having these bespoke custom models and playing these, you know, involved rules, like it's really impressive. So, I'm a big fan of uh, of Warhammer from its its early iterations through to some of its some of its more modern iterations. But um, this book was really interesting to read. gave a really cool perspective on what Warhammer started as, and I think for for future really laid down an expectation of how this type of game was going to be approached
0: no i mean i was i was surprised as to what was in here and as far as like what i understand the impact of it to be is the start of the more mass popularization of wargaming it's certainly fantasy wargaming uh as a as a hobby and it standardized eventually a lot of things, but you can kind of see some of that where it's sort of like, Hey, we've got some we've got some ways to do this, and then that builds trust. And then when they bring it the next edition, then it feels like they're speaking from a form of authority because they've kind of earned that in this book yes
1: i would totally agree with that i have a lot of respect for rick Priestley as a designer i mean the whole design staff did great work on this game you know the whole like team i I guess i shouldn't call them a staff because it's way smaller than that (laughs) it's too informal at this stage yeah but like rick Priestley's designs have always been a personal favorite of mine all the way to like war master so he's been making really cool games his whole career and in this you can see the spark and you can see the start. And it's funny. I actually kind of prefer reading this than I, to reading Rogue Trader. Yeah. Like I like Rogue Trader. I love it, no doubt. Oh, it's fun. But this is like, when I read Rogue Trader, I was like, wow, there's a lot going on here, more so than in this. When I read this, my first thought was, let's get this to table, you know?
0: Yeah, definitely. This seems, this is very, compared to some other products that Games Workshop has put out with, it's certainly around this time and like some of the earlier stuff this is weirdly accessible like yeah. you, you kind of get it like it for us it's a little bit hard to say what somebody who has no concept of like tabletop wargaming or role-playing would have but from the sort of fairly like reasonably initiated this is pretty straightforward and you do want to kind of be like oh yeah i could see myself let's get the let's get the minis out and see what happens
1: yeah 100% and just the way that it's written it's written with a casualness it's written with a sense of fun it's kind of written with this sense of imagination that i really like and i've come to be influenced by the writing style of some of these authors in the way I look and read at war games today. So there are some books that I just bounce right off of because they don't have that that tone where you're speaking with someone, Mm. you know? They're just like, if this, then that. And that to me does not make a good rule book for the purposes of reading. Maybe for the purposes of explaining the rules mechanically to a player as efficiently as possible in the lowest word count, sure i'll give it to you but actually being something that you want to sit down and read and engage with i don't know these guys did a good job
0: yeah you you read this you want to read this because it's fun to read you don't read like an spi manual you you read that so you know how to play the game and it will do a good job of telling you that but i won't call it a fun experience
1: yes I totally agree with that. And I mean, maybe I shouldn't expect my rule books to be enjoyable in that sense. But if you're expecting me to read this, I better get something out of it. And
0: yeah, it's got a good amount of art, a good amount of text. And I don't even think it's that difficult to find what you're looking for. No. It's handy having all the magic stuff in its own book, because if you don't want to use it, it's not going to block up trying to find another rule. You just put that book to the side or... You know, maybe, you're, maybe you've got it and it's easier to find it because you're not having to find your spells mixed in with a bunch of movement rules.
1: Yeah, exactly. It's just like the three booklets seems weird and archaic, but it works really well.
0: I'm a big fan of the individualized books, especially for reference. There's, I, I, I can see the appeal of wanting to cram it all in one printing, but it's so hard to look things up sometimes.
1: Yeah, a 300-page hardcover
0: is bad for that. Especially if, like, and this is, again, in the role-playing context, it's like, the one guy who's playing a wizard, he's got enough hard time bookkeeping all of that shit. (laughs) Just give him the spell book. Yeah. Right? And then you still got all of your stuff. Yeah. If you need it back to reference something else, then you know who has it. Um, But, yeah, I don't know. I I know that, like, Old School Essentials kind of did a printing like that with, with their uh game which is essentially a a redeveloped or a a rewritten basic expert and i remember reading a lot of the comments on the product and some people were like a little confused and frustrated and wanted all in one book and then they did that Um, but other people were like, Hey, you know, it's really handy having the spell book, like the magic be something separate.
1: Yes. I could totally see the use case for that. Right. It makes so much sense.
0: Any other final thoughts? That's, that's it.
1: That's Warhammer fantasy battles. I mean, I think that covers this game. It covers what made the game and what later came from the game. I think the big key points are that this is... Faster and lighter than you may have expected. It was an exciting intro for Games Workshop into the rule space and completely changed what Wargaming was going to turn into afterwards. And you can easily see the Dungeons & Dragons influence into this game that helped define fantasy gaming. So you can really see the lineage. You can see the progression. Um, I When I was reading this, I expected there to be more reference to what chainmail felt like but it's like that was reaper mm-hmm. that was done before this title yeah this title was another step away from it evolutionarily and it feels more like a dungeons and dragons game than it does a chainmail alike game in many respects but really enjoyed this process of reading this book and going through it look forward to spending more time with this as we're going to go through some of the supplements that were released for this game in future episodes. So we'll give you a little bit of a breakdown on the second boxed release that did come for this title. And we'll get more into future editions as time goes on, I'm sure.
0: Yeah, um, we're still probably deciding on what the next episode is. I might want to touch on Tunnels and Trolls just because that's an interesting little uh, outgrowth of Dungeons and Dragons. 100%. i would say probably following shortly after that we'll be into another war game um and uh yeah all right well until next time this has been tales and tactics and uh thank you for listening if you've got it all the way through to the end and i look forward to making the next one